today, we're going to look at a story that will blow away any Disney princess story. One, because it's true. Two, because this story tells the story of a girl who is orphaned, who loses her parents, who is raised by a loving uncle, who's part of an oppressed group of, of, in her country. She's a young woman who will become queen. She will have to face an overwhelming evil that does not look like there's any way it can be conquered. She will have to take on the law of the land, and her life will be forfeit if she makes any mistakes. And God steps in. Now something else about this story. If you read this book, you will never see the name of God in the book. Not once. And yet his fingerprints are on every page. If you take this story, you'll never hear the word prayer mentioned. And yet prayer is the undergirding of this entire book. You'll never read the word intercessor but you will see a young woman become an intercessor for her people. And she will step in the gap for her people. You will never read the name Jesus in this book, but as we peel back its beauty, we begin to see the face of our Savior. So the book we're going to be looking at today is the book of Esther. We're going to go through the whole book, so buckle up. But to start with the book, you have to go all the way back before the book begins to a guy named Darius. Now, Darius was the head of the Medes and Persians. He was the king. And Darius had attacked Greece. And they were he was trying to take him over. And in the Battle of Marathon, the Greeks defeat him. That's where that legend of the marathon runner comes from. Supposedly a man ran from Marathon to Athens and uh, after that 26 miles delivered the message and died on the spot. Now Darius was furious that he lost this battle. So he had a plan. I'm going to come back. I'm going to destroy Greece. But it never happened. Now, Darius's father was a guy by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus was the one who released the people to go back and build the wall and build the temple. He worked with Ezra. He worked with Nehemiah. And many of the Jewish people returned back to their land. But there was a number, a huge number, who stayed in the land of Persia. So, Darius dies, and his son, Xerxes, takes over. Now Xerxes is the one who is charged with attacking Greece. Xerxes calls a huge six-month planning, 180-day planning party. It is during this planning party that the book of Esther begins. It is from this meeting that the uh, um, invasion of Greece will take place. That's where you have the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae, the sacking of Athens, and eventually the defeat of Xerxes. 
But this is where it is. Now, some of your Bibles, the name in there is Ahasuerus instead of Xerxes. And that's because that's the Jewish name for him. So now we're ready to begin the book of Esther. Now, I'm going to tell the story, because I know we have a lot of kids here. I'm going to tell first the story so you get the setting of Esther. At the end of that six months, a party is thrown. And it is a party unlike any other party. And one of the, one of the um, things they did at the party was normally whatever the custom of the king was, that's what you ate and drank. At this party, the king says, no custom. You eat and drink as much as you want. Now, at the end of the party, at the end of a week of this, people are a bit partied out. And some of them are not sober. And so here's what happens. One of them says, hey, king, don't you have a really pretty wife? Don't you have a really pretty wife? And her name was Vashti. And that's our next picture. Queen Vashti. Yeah. Yeah, I got a beautiful wife. Well, why don't you bring her out? We want to see her. And so they went off to ask Vashti to come. The king has commanded you come in front of our drunken rabble. Now, kids, I'm going to take a little quick side, side note here. In the ESV, it says their hearts were merry with wine. That means they were drunk. And you know what the Bible says about that? The Bible says this, kids, don't be drunk with wine. Why? Because in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says that our hearts are, are wicked and deceptive. And when we're drunk, when we're not in control, that evil comes out. And it rains destruction on all around. That's why it says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. So you are to be overwhelmed, not by alcohol, but overwhelmed by God's Spirit. Why? Because God's Spirit interacts with that evil and heals us of that evil and causes us to repent from that evil and he turns what would be destructive into something good. So kids, that's why this isn't a good situation for Vashti. Evil is out. And so they come, they say, Queen, you need to, you need to do this. And the queen says, uh-uh. No. That's not a word Xerxes had ever heard before. So they came back, uh, uh, sir, you know, um, where's my wife? Um, she said no. What? She can't do that. But she did. And this sent shockwaves through the kingdom. You never told the king no. And so the king had a special meeting of all his advisors, and his advisors are going, oh, this is awful, king, because you know what? The moment the wives hear that she said no to you, they're going to look at us and say, well, you're not the king, and if the queen can re rebel against the king, we can rebel against you. 
And so the guys are scared spitless. What happens when the wives just realize they got the power? Well, we got to come up with a plan. First of all, she'll be stripped of her rights as queen. She'll never see you again. And that became the law. But little time passed, and King Xerxes started thinking to himself, you know, I miss my wife. I miss my wife. What should we do? And the counselor said, well, let's have a beauty contest. King says, that sounds pretty good. So out of 25 million women, 400 were selected. And of the 400, they were taken to the palace for a year of beauty treatment. And one of them was a girl by the name of Hadassah, who you know as Esther. Her parents had died. She lived with her uncle Mordecai. He raised her as as his own daughter. She was beautiful, and her inner beauty was even greater than her outer beauty. And what happens is she goes into the temple or into the, the king's palace. She goes through the training. And Esther's beauty of interior heart wins the day, and she becomes the queen. And I want you to catch this. God places her in the right place for the right time. And then the king, because he's so excited, he throws a party, and it's like Christmas. Everybody gets presents. Now, her uncle was a guy by the name of Mordecai. And after he became queen, or after Esther became queen, he didn't become queen, he's working in the government, and you can see him. He's sitting here on the corner. And those two men are plotting to kill Xerxes. He hears it. He reports it to Esther. Esther reports it to the king. They investigate. They find it's true. And they execute the two men, and they write it down in the book of what Mordecai had done. Now, what they would normally do at this time is they would reward him. But they didn't. You need to remember that. That's going to come back in the story. So five years go by. There's a new guy on the scene, a guy by the name of Haman. Now, Haman is an Agite. Now, being an Agite is very important. He becomes exalted in the the kingdom. The king actually tells people to bow down to him. But here's what it means to be an Agite. About a thousand years before Haman, the Israelites were going into the land. The Ammonites, who the Agites were part of, attacked them. God then places a curse on them. So from that point on, they become enemies. Now, go down about 400 years after that. King Saul, he starts a war with them, or they actually start a war with King Saul, and he captures King Agag, the head of the Agites. And so King Saul, he's supposed to put this very evil man to death, but he doesn't, so Agag dies at the hands of Samuel the priest. 600 years now pass, and some of the Agites survive. They have a grudge against the Jewish people for what happened. And so Haman hates the Jewish people. And to make matters worse, 
every time he'd walk in, everyone would bow, but Mordecai, because he would only bow to God, won't bow to him. And this infuriates him. So he says, hey, hey, who is this guy? And he finds out that Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, that's where Saul's from. And not only is he from the tribe of Benjamin, but he's from the tribe of Kish. That's exactly where Saul came from. So here's the guy who's related to the king who beat his grandpa, great, 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 great grandpa in battle. And now the blood feud begins. And this is a feud that makes the Hatfields and the McCoys look like amateurs. So he walks into the king. He says, King, I got a great idea. We can wipe out an enemy of the state, the Jewish people. And we're going to wipe them out. And everything that they leave behind, we're going to give a good portion of it to the king. You're going to get rich off this. And the king says, well, there are enemies. Yeah, yeah, there are enemies. Okay, let's do it. So Mordecai hears as the king signs the law and the people of God are doomed. And one thing about the law, once it was signed, it could not be unsigned. It could not be changed. Mordecai tells Esther of the plot. He tells her to use her position to save her people and, and that she was there for such a time as this. And she says, I, I, I haven't seen the king for 30 days, and that's important. You see, unless you were invited, you didn't go see the king. If you did, it was death, unless he took his scepter and put it towards you. And she said, I'll tell you what, go and fast. She never says the word pray, but go and fast, I'll fast, and then I'll go see the king. And if I die, I die. So Esther goes into the court. This man with this horrible temper, he's sitting there looking and saying, hmm, why is my queen here? Do I give her the scepter or do I have her put to death? And he gives her the scepter. In fact, he says, you can have up to half my kingdom. I would have said, yeah, I want that half, and I'll move all the Jewish people there. But she didn't do that. And he says, what do you want? She says, I want dinner with you, my king, and with Haman. Okay, kind of strange to risk death over this, but fine. So Haman is in seventh heaven. He goes away from the court happy. He's going to have dinner with the king. He's going to have dinner with the queen. And he is so excited. And then he sees Mordecai standing there. And his heart turns to hatred. And he makes up his mind. I'm going to tell the king that that guy needs to die. And he goes home. That night, the king can't sleep. So he goes down to the book of records and he has them read. And guess what story they read? They start reading the story of Mordecai saving his life. And the king's going, well, what did you do for him? And they said, nothing. Why not? I love, I love, I love, I love to reward people when they help me out. And he says, nothing for now. He says, well, then this is huge. This is huge. And he stays up all night thinking about it. 
So the next day, Haman walks in. He doesn't realize this is going to be the worst day of his life. Because they, they just had, uh, he, 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 he goes in and he says, hey, uh, king, how's it going? He says, uh, how do I reward someone I really like? He says, oh, this is what you do. You get out your best clothes. Get out your best horse. And you get the highest guy in the kingdom to walk in front of him and say, this is what the king does for the people he loves, the people that bring him joy, the people who obey. Because Haman thought it was him that was going to get it. So can you imagine his shock when he turns and says, great, go get Mordecai and do this. And you're the one who not only puts him on the horse, but you have to dress him. I can't ask to kill him because I just had to walk around doing this. So they have dinner. The night comes. The king, the king turns to her and says, what, what do you want? What do you want? And she says, and they, they had dinner the night before, and then they had dinner this night. And she says, King, I, I wouldn't trouble you. You're just putting us in slavery. I, I wouldn't trouble you. But would you spare my life? What? Would you spare my life and the lives of my people? If it was just slavery, I wouldn't trouble you, but but we're going to be destroyed. And Xerxes hits the roof. Now you have to understand something about Xerxes' anger. When he got mad, he got mad. He was trying at one time to build a bridge of boats, and a storm came up in the sea and destroyed this bridge of boats. He was so angry, he called all the engineers, he executed them, and then he had his army go out to the ocean and start beating the ocean with whips. And then he had him grab chains and throw it in the ocean to enslave the ocean. And then to finish the ocean off, he took hot pokers and had his army use hot pokers on the ocean. This guy, when he got mad, he got mad. And so he goes out. Haman realizes he's in trouble. So he goes over to plead with Esther and he falls on top of her. And as he falls on top of her, the king walks back in. And the king says, you're not even going to wait. You're going to try to kill her now. Guards! And the guards grab him. And one of the guards goes, um, sir, um, Mr. Haman, you know, he hates Mordecai, the guy who saved your life. Yeah, that guy. And he built these giant gallows to hang Ham, uh, Mordecai from. Um, well, what should we do with those? Hang Haman. Now there's a problem. The law cannot be changed. So the king turns to Esther and Mordecai and says, come up with a second law. And they come up with a law that, that they can defend themselves. And the king supports it and signs it. And then the kingdom starts supporting the Jewish people and they defend themselves day after day. And they're saved. 
because of a young woman who was willing to intercede for her people. And from that came a festival called Purim, which still goes on today, which remembers how Esther and Mordecai saved their people. But I want you to see the picture of Jesus Christ in this book. So come with me. First of all, let's understand that it is the picture of Jesus as an intercessor. Esther is an intercessor for her people. She is one who speaks for someone in order to help or defend someone else. An intercessor takes someone's problems upon themselves and stands between that person and the problems. They identify with the oppressed. They put their needs above their own in order to protect them. They appeal to the one who has power and authority to make that happen. And Esther's intersection is a picture of our Savior. Notice first it's a picture of our Savior's humility. In Esther chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we see this. Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. He quickly provided her with the cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Look at Esther chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abishai, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken into the king, into his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month of Teba, which is the seventh year of his reign, the king loved her more than all the other women, and she won grace and favor in his sight. Esther is the model of humility. She could have walked in with her attitude. She could have had everything her own way. But instead, she submits. She submits to the one over her. She only did what she was told to do. She only took the clothes, the jewelry, as what was prescribed to her. If you ever get to see the movie, One Night with the King, this situation is played out because each woman would go in front of the king and they were allowed to raid the royal treasury to wear whatever they thought would win the king's attention. And it's, it is humorous because you see these women go into the treasury and just put everything on and they can't walk. And what does Esther do? Esther shows true humility and does only what's prescribed. Jesus too submits. He shows us true humility. But instead of jewels, he wears something else. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Where Esther wore jewels, Jesus wore humanity. Where Esther prepared to become a queen, Jesus became a servant. Where Esther gained power, Jesus gave his up. Where Esther received a life of royalty, Jesus took the death of the cross. Where a king exalted Esther, Jesus will be exalted by God himself. Therefore, Philippians 2.9, 
God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You and I are called to be followers of Jesus Christ. We are called to be imitators of him. We are called to be his intercessors for this world. And to be his intercessors, we must start with the same mind as Jesus Christ. We must start with a mind of humility. If we are to be the people who will be like Esther, like our Savior, stand in the gap, we must begin with humility. I want you never, never to forget this quote. God is 100% for the humble and 100% against the proud. The moment we start thinking that we're something, the moment we begin to think we're entitled, we're in trouble. There was a book that came out a few years ago. It's called The Theology of Dogs and Cats. The premise is something like this. A dog looks at you says, you feed me, you cook me in, you love me, you, you, you clean up after me. You must be God. A cat says, you took me in the home, you feed me, you clean up after me, you love me. I must be God. Dogs have owners, cats have staff. And the author of the book said, where's your heart? Is God your staff? Are you entitled? Yeah, God better listen to me. He's lucky to have me. Friends, we can become arrogant in our spirit. We can believe we deserve things a certain way or people should do what we want them to do. But to be like Jesus means we put our own pride to the side and find out what God wants and how he wants us to love the people he loves. Next, Esther's intercession is a picture of Jesus' incarnation. Esther is amazing because she walks in two worlds. She was fully Jewish, and they kept that quiet until the right time. And she was also a queen. Being a Jew allowed her to identify with her people. Being a queen allowed her access to the king. She is a beautiful picture of this incarnation. We see this at the banquet when she reveals herself. Esther chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. She walks in two worlds. She's the queen, but she identifies with her people. When Jesus came to this world, he was identified both as God and man. Turn with me to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He is definitely God, but notice what he puts on. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Whereas Esther was made or appointed to be queen, Jesus was fully God. No one made him to be God. He was, is, and always will be God. But he became a man so as to identify with us. 
to share in our suffering, to represent us so that he might be able to intercede for us with his Father. You and I as imitators are called to be incarnational in our community. We are called to be people of the flesh who are filled with the Spirit of God and take that Spirit and take that hope that is within us to places where there is no hope. It means a mindset of looking around and saying, I'm God's incarnation in this place. I heard a story at one of the small groups how a couple sat in a place, and and I, I wish I could go into detail on the story, but how they sat in a place and they saw an opportunity for God to work through them being incarnational, and God allowed them to minister to another family. Why? Because they understood that wherever they went, they were the incarnation of God's people. Discovery 3, Esther's intersection, is a picture of Jesus being the right option at the right time. Mordecai discovers the plot. He informs Esther and urges her to go see the king. She informs him the king has not summoned her for 30 days, and to go see him without his permission would be fatal. Esther 4, 13, 14. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Why? Because there's a covenant relationship. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows God won't abandon his people. And that Esther was the right person, but only if she chose to obey. How different this is for Jesus. He was our only option at just the right time. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the only option. We see it reinforced in the garden. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus understood he was our only option. There was any other way it would have been done, but this was it. And because he chose to go to the cross, because he chose to go to the grave, because he triumphed at the resurrection, the apostle writes in Acts 4, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And his timing is perfect. Every prophecy that had to come to pass did. Every place, every time, every event was in perfect alignment. So Paul wrote, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Friends, that's why we preach not the wisdom of man, but Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, raised, and coming again. That is why our hope is on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. We will not trust the sweetest frame. We will wholly lean on Jesus' name because Christ is our solid rock on which this church will stand. If you ask me to come, this pulpit will preach Jesus. And even though he may seem foolish to the world and cause some to stumble, we will only know Jesus and rest fully on his saving grace. 
And if you don't want that, you better vote no today. Because we're going to be all about Jesus. And as we intercede, we realize that God has orchestrated every encounter. You are not here by accident. The people you are put into their lives, not by accident. You begin to see the people around us not as challenges to be endured, but God appointed meetings for us to intercede for them. It means that this church is on this corner for a reason. It means we have been gathered for a reason. We have a mandate and a mission to be God's intercessors. We are here at the right time in the right place to bring God his glory. Amen? Number four, Esther's salvation is a picture of Jesus' salvation. But Jesus is so much greater. I mean, Esther, look, look who Jesus represents. Esther represents the innocent. There's no good reason to kill the Jewish people. They didn't do anything. They were innocent victims. Mordecai has proven they're willing to save the life of their king. But not so with the ones Jesus intercedes for. Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus interceded not for the innocent, but for the guilty, for those who did not deserve. But because of his great love, he did. And friends, if you have ever doubted the love of God, I want you to look on the cross, because every time you see the cross, you see love proven for all time. Not only is it greater in representation, but it's greater in scope. Esther was amazing. She saved an ethnic group. She saved 14 million people. That is incredible. But notice what Jesus does. Revelation 7. After this I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, for all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. For every tribe, every tongue, every nation with a multitude cannot be numbered. Jesus has given salvation. And his salvation cannot be matched or duplicated. It belongs to him and him alone. And we as intercessors have been entrusted by God to take this salvation to our world. We have the privilege of being part of his strategy to bring every nation, every tongue to him. We have his gospel of hope to share with those who have no hope. And that leads us to our conclusion. We will have a celebration, which Esther's celebration is a picture of Jesus's. Due to time, I won't walk you through all those verses, but here's what happens. They throw a party. And it is still celebrated today. It's called Purim. You and I have a party. We have a celebration to get ready for. 
Now, you may have caught something today. If, if you call me, we're going to do a lot of celebrating because God calls us to. But we have a big celebration that the world has never experienced. Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said this to me, these are the true words of God. We are going to be invited, my friends, to a celebration, a wedding. It will be a wedding that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard. It will be joy that flows like a river from the throne of God. And we will celebrate the one who has interceded for us so that we might become his people. So as we close... I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I want to give you a taste of what it's going to be like. Just a small taste. I'm going to have you stand with me right now, and I'm going to have you read Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11. And if you are so moved to bow down, if you're so moved to take a knee, and you're able to, then do it. If you can't, stand and raise your hand or shout. But listen and read this with me. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Let's thank him. Father, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord here. We acknowledge him and we bow before his lordship. Father, if there's someone here today who's never done that, I would ask that they would be moved to go and talk with our prayer team. Father, I pray that they would go. Or if there's a believer here who says, you know what, I, I have something in my life. I'm not bowing down to Jesus, that they would talk to our prayer intercessors. But Father, Jesus is our Lord, and we celebrate him to the glory of God. And in Jesus' name is why we can pray. <laughs>